together. And since you came together, we thought we'd start the meetings with the sound of the shofar. Now we're here to learn and what it will teach us about the tabernacle, the Old Testament Hebrew tabernacle. Now uh, for those of you that brought your Bible, let me show you a little bit of what the New Testament says about it. So if you have your Bible, if not just listen, but go to Hebrews chapter 9, book of Hebrews and chapter 9, and it will be what the New Testament has to say about this Old Testament tabernacle. Just going to read part of it for now, Hebrews 9 and verse 1, and I might just remind you, uh, the, the sessions tonight go till a little bit after 9 o'clock, who knows, 9.05, 9.10, 9.15 at the latest, we don't know. But uh, we'll, take a break. we'll take a stand-up break, him or something, in the middle, all right, so you can stretch and get some air. But uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1. 9.1, then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly or earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle made. I just want to stop there. There was a tabernacle made. When we come to this subject of the tabernacle, you see pictured behind me, if you can see it, of facsimile of the whole. And the word tabernacle simply means tent. That's what it means, a tent. But it's a special tent because it's a tent where somebody lives. And that somebody was God. You know, in Exodus 25, 8, the Lord said to Israel, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God wanted to be near his people as they journey through that barren wilderness to their promised inheritance, the promised land. And God wanting to be near his people and lead them said, make me a sanctuary. But since they were moving, God would lead them and move also. So it was portable. It was a tent. But it was a tent where the living God lived. And so it was called a tabernacle, a tent where someone lives. Now having said that, let me explain the model you'll be looking at will be demonstrating to you. The actual tabernacle, the Bible gives you its measurements, and a measurement we don't use anymore, cubits, not yardsticks or feet, but cubits. They say, those that have researched it, they say that a cubit is the average length of a man's elbow to his fingertip. And they had averaged that to be 18 inches or a foot and a half. If that is accurate, translating the biblical cubit into a foot and a half, then the measure of the tabernacle as a whole, you, you see this outer white fence that was the wall around it, well, it was 100 cubits this way in length, which means 150 feet. And it was 70, 50 cubits this way in width, which means 75 feet. So it was 100 by 75 feet, or 150, excuse me, if you go to feet, by 75. That's half the size of... I was asking Darren what we call it now, uh, Sun Life Stadium. Is that the latest name? Where do Miami Dolphins play? Okay. Half the size of a football field was the tabernacle. Now, we had to reduce this model to get it in most buildings. But to get it in your building, we had to reduce it even more. <laughs> and, uh, we, we shortened this by 10 feet and so on. So the sanctuary, the, the, the actual holy places where God lived, the sanctuary itself was 45 feet. Room number one, which I'll talk about in a minute, the holy place, would have been 30 feet and half the size, 
the holiest of holies would have been 15 feet. But normally we have this two-third size we could not hear, and so rather than this being, uh, 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 this is 10 by 10, it really should be 20 feet, but we'll still get the objects across. It's just greatly compressed, and then there's the outside courtyard. Now having said, said that, what I want to begin to do is just pull some of these curtains back so where you're sitting you'll get a little better visual. You're now over here looking into the sanctuary itself, uh, room number one, the holy place. I will just pull this back a little, the holiest of all. Or it's where the living God dwelt. If you want to move your seat around, you may. And uh, that is the holiest. That's the second room of the sanctuary. Now, having said that, giving you just a brief description of the model, before we give you more of the layout, uh, let me read on here in Hebrews 9. There was a tabernacle made, but now we're going to learn the purpose it served. I take you down to verse 9, Hebrews 9 and verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to conscience, which was a figure for the present time. A figure, you know what the Greek word is there, parabolos. That's where we get the word parable, translated parable. This tabernacle serves as a parable. Now, a parable is simply a word picture, you know, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And the Lord Jesus, you know, when he was on earth, he told a lot of parables, didn't he? But, you know, that's not the only parables in the Bible. There's a very big parable in the Old Testament called the tabernacle. It's an earthly model with a heavenly meaning. Just like if I went to your house and I had never met you, but your parents show me a picture of you, you young people, and there it is hanging on the wall. And I also, that's your picture. And then I see you at meeting tonight, I said, I know who your parents are. I've seen your picture. Is the picture really you? Not really you. I could pinch it. It doesn't say ow. I can hold up my candy bar and it won't bite it. It's, it's not really you, but it, it, it's a picture of you so I can recognize you. That's what this tabernacle serves as. It serves as a model picture, a figure, a parable. Now, what it is picturing, it tells us. We don't have to guess at what it's picturing. So let me read on. We're now in Hebrews 9 and verse 10. Hebrews 9 and verse 10 which stood only in meats and drinks and divers' washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them, that is Israel, until the time of Reformation. I want to stop there. This is a temporary system. What you see here no longer exists in God's economy. But it was imposed on God's people until the time of Reformation. Somebody might say, well, what is the time of Reformation? Well, in the Bible, it's not, it's not Martin Luther. It's not speaking of that here. The time of Reformation is the very next verse. You look at verse 11, who it pictures. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. So it's a picture of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this tabernacle, as we study it, Lord willing, this weekend, you want to kind of train your mind, if you're thinking biblical, to say, how does this remind me of Jesus Christ? For it is a figure, a parable of Christ being come. Now, we don't need the parable anymore to literally function in because we have the reality 
in the Lord Jesus. And so it's a, it's a picture of Christ. Now further on that, if, if you look in Hebrews 9 and look at verse 24. Verse 24. It says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. These, this physical religious building was made with hands. Israel made it under Moses. But Christ has not entered into this building. These are only figures of the true. He's entered into heaven itself. And all of a sudden, it's picturing Christ and heaven itself. What, how does it work in heaven? How do you approach God? How do you come to God? How do you know God? Uh, how does heaven function? Just like you might say, how does the White House function? Well, you can't see heaven, nor can you see the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, the Son of God. But if you look at the picture, it will start to describe heaven itself and the way to come to God and Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the purpose of it, to give you an earthly model of a heavenly reality. Let me show you another verse on that. Go back, if you would, to Hebrews 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, and I'll read verse 5. Speaking of the same subject, Hebrews 8 and verse 5. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God, when he was about to make the tabernacle for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. You see, it is only an example of shadow of heavenly things. Moses sought a reality. God said, here's a real one. You know, the real one's in heaven. John the apostle saw the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. It's the heavenly reality. So Moses had the real one to copy from. And so this serves as an example and shadow. So that is the way we're going to approach it. We're not going to approach it saying that you need some earthly priest today and you need some animals to uh, sacrifice for you. Not at all. We're going to say this simply serves as a shadow of the reality that's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that, that's the approach the Bible would tell us to take. Now, having said that, having given the purpose it serves for our thinking today from, from the Word of God, I want to give you the layout of it a little bit. If I went to your house, your house would have some rooms, wouldn't it? Well, God's house had two rooms, two rooms. It also, if I went to your house, most of your homes, I think I would see maybe a little patio or a yard or something, wouldn't I? Well, outside here, I'm walking in the outside part. I, I know we have this all cut away. But you look up here. Where I'm standing is completely covered. We don't have it covered, so you can see it, okay? But it was a tent. It was a sanctuary, a holy place, and it was covered. But now out here... This is the outside courtyard of which I'm walking into right now. I'm in the outside. So that it has three major parts to it. It has the outside courtyard where I am standing. And then the sanctuary begins, and it has two rooms. Room number one is usually called the holy place. The holy place. But you notice there's a second room, and I pulled the veil back. And this is called the holiest of holies, for the living God dwelt there. So we have the outside courtyard, section number one. We then come into an, a room that will be called the holy place, and because God himself lived back here, it's called the holiest, room number two. 
Now, with that in mind, I simply want to introduce, we'll be developing this, Lord willing, all weekend, the major activity that happened in each place. The major activity that happened in each place. They said I was going to trip on that, and I did, okay? And I'll do it again later. <laughs> and to help you understand, it's really from the Bible, uh, I'm going to kind of reduce it to one word, and each word will start with an S. So if we come out here, I'm in the courtyard. There's going to be a whole lot of activity out here. But go to Hebrews 10 and verse 11. Let me show you the major activity out there. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins at that time in history. They were offering sacrifices. So the big thing out here, here's a burnt altar. There's animals, one laying on it. Here's animals that are going to die. Their blood will be shed. Part of them will be burnt on here as an offering, as a sacrifice to God for sin. So out here, the big activity was sacrifices. Sacrifices. But now having said that, as you would leave the courtyard and enter into God's house his sanctuary, his tabernacle, and you would come into room number one. It was called the holy place, and you didn't sacrifice in here at all. No animal ever died in here. Go back to Hebrews 9, if you would. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, and if you look at verse... Uh, 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 Hebrews 9, and look at verse 6. Verse 6. And when these things were thus ordained, the priest always went into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. The first tabernacle means room number one. Other scriptures, it's called the holy place. And what the priest did here, they accomplished the service of God. Out here, sacrifices. In the first room, the holy place, service. It's where priestly service was unto God. So the service of God, what met God's heart, what pleased God on an earth that was against Him, the service of God was accomplished here. So the outside courtyard, main activity, sacrifices. Main activity here, service. The service of God accomplished by the priest in room number one. But, I'm going to talk about room number two, the holiest. Now remember it had a veil. I, I had pulled it away so you could see it. That was meant to act as a blockade. You see, the children of Israel, they weren't even allowed to come in here, only the priest. But then as you got closer to God's presence and closer, even the priest could not step a foot in here. Only the high priest, after Moses died, could do it once a year. And, and that veil would act as a blockade. You know what a shut door usually says? <laughs> stay out, stay out. You see the cherubim? Some of you will see it, and some of you see, see it over here are not going to see it. But you can come up later. You ever go to the White House or a King's Palace? Guards, huh? Sometimes they'll have lions there, you know, and so on, and things like that. It's meant to invoke fear to say, you just can't walk right in. Cherubim were used in the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve away from the tree of life after they sinned. Remember that? They're kind of like God's guardians of His holiness. And they're acting there as guards to say, you, you stay out. You, God is holy. God is glorious. We're going to learn that you just can't walk into His presence. 
Just look at the picture. Here's God, His glory in the holiest, and here's this white linen wall. God is on the inside, and man is on the outside. God's on the inside, man's on the outside. But, but how do you get to God if you can get to God? And so there's the holy God, and that was exactly where his presence was back there. And you could not just casually walk in and say, well, here I am, Lord, it's good to see you. Yeah, you would drop over dead as we're going to find out. But the main activity there, the main activity there, uh, if you go, uh, well, I'll just quote it to you as I pull this back. In the beginning, there was a man called Moses. You've heard of him. And God speaking of the ark, and I haven't talked about the furniture much yet, but God speaking of this chest, the ark, with its lid, the mercy seat, told Moses in Exodus 25:22, there, right between the cherubim, there's cherubim there too, golden ones, there will I meet with thee, and there will I commune or speak with thee. It is where God met alone with Moses to speak to him. He would hear the voice of God and have communion with God, the meeting place with God. So what happened here as far as Moses was concerned, it was where the, the, the God spoke. He could hear the voice of God. So out here, you had sacrificing. In here, you had service to God. In here, you had speaking. Only one man benefited from it, uh, but we'll see that's all changed. But one man did, and, and God spoke to him. There will I commune or speak with thee. So that is the layout. And this weekend, Lord willing, we'll be progressing, especially a little bit tonight and much more tomorrow and Sunday, Lord willing, uh, of, of being out here later on and then going into here. Uh, what's this all about? And then how far can I go? I can, can I really go in here now like Moses? Well, we'll just wait and see here. Now, just like your house. You have furniture in your house? I'm sure you do. And the furniture conveys something, what you're to do in that room and so on. Well, God had in his house seven pieces of furniture. Seven pieces of furniture. Some of you know that in the Bible the number seven has a special meaning. It's, it's God's number of completion or perfection. Remember he made the world in how many days? Six. And everything was done. It was perfect. It was complete. So he rested the seventh day. So seven picking up that meaning of things are complete, they're perfect, and so on. Now, let's just count them. Out here, we have the brazen altar of blood sacrifice, a burnt offering, where death happened. Then you had a water basin, and the name of it in the Bible is laver. There goes that walking stick. Or a lavatory, lavatory. Before we get our word lavatory. A place of washing. That's two pieces. I think we'll move this to a safer place. Thank you. Then as I come in the holy place, uh, there is this table of showbread or display bread. We'll talk more about it. It's piece number three. On the south side is the one source of light, the lampstand with seven burning lights. There's a number seven again, one source of light in the holy place. Then you come to an altar, but you never sacrifice an animal on here. This is for incense to send up before God a special formula. And so that makes five. But then if I go into the holiest of holies, it looks like one, but there's two. 
There's the ark, the chest itself, made out of wood and gold, wood and then overlaid with gold. And there's a separate lid called the mercy seat with golden cherubim. But this, this covering was to go over the ark. Thus it was two separate pieces combined into one, making a total of seven pieces. Uh, you know, that, that number seven uh, has to do with perfection, huh? The complete way to come to God, the perfect way to come to God. Uh, if your head is perfect tonight, guess how many holes you have in it? Seven. If you come up with a different number, it might answer a few things. Huh? So, so, so seven holes. You, you, you know, uh, music. What, what's, anybody say those seven basic notes, brothers? Do, re, mi, fa, revolati. Yeah, seven basic notes to all music. And it's just one of those numbers. If you would, and it's not going to work in the way we have to compress it in your building, but you'll have to use your imagination. It was much more spread out. But if you would start here and trace a line coming from the altar and then come into the holy place, and this would be more expanded, and then come out here and then come back in here to the single altar and then walk in here, and it happened 1,500 years before the Lord Jesus came, if you would dare to do that, and, and trace those seven pieces of furniture, that's exactly what it would form. The way to God. Huh. Pictured for you. The way to God, forming the cross on which his son one day would shed his blood. Having said that, having said that, what we'd like to do in the remaining minutes of our first session is go out here for a while and to show you one of the major things that had to happen. If you're going to come toward the presence of God, the way God arranged this house, you did not start here. That would have been a disaster. That would have been a disaster to start here. In fact, one day in Israel's history, the enemy stole the ark in battle, and, and they brought it back to Israel one day, and they were so excited to get it back, they touched it, and they lifted it up, and they looked inside. Guess what happened? 50,070 people died. 50,070 in 1 Samuel 6. That's like a football stadium. That's a disaster. And the survivors asked in 1 Samuel 6, 19, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? It's the question of a lifetime. Who can stand before a holy, this holy Lord God? Many people think they just can come right in. But look at the model. God never designed it that, that there was a door here and just walked in. You had to start way out here, and I'm not even sure I can get to it in the quarters we have here, but you had to start through this one gate. This is the actual gate. You, you see it pictured on the chart. And this is the actual gate that would let you in. And if you look at the chart, those of you that can see it, there's only one. It's on the eastern side. You do not see one here or here on the uh, uh, west or east or uh, or excuse me, on the west side, the south side, the north side. There's only one way in. So God made a way in. Thank God there's a gate. You ever see these rich houses and they have walls? They tell you to stay out, don't they? <laughs> if, if there was no gate, God's message would be, I'm holy, you're sinful, we'll never meet. But there is a way in. But how many ways was there? Well, there was only one gate on the eastern side. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who said in John 10:9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. He is the door. He's the one way to God because he's the Son of God. 
so that when you came to God and you walked through that door, that gate to be specific, the first piece of furniture you would run into is the altar of sacrifice where animals died, where blood had to be shed for sin. You did not run into this table of bread for fellowship with God. You did not run into the Davidic praise team. You did not run into this incense which represents prayer. Uh, You came to a place of a bloody place where death had to happen. And God is communicating something that if you're going to have a relationship with God, your sin has to be taken care of because he is holy. The picture is simple that children can take it in. The first thing God is interested in, the most important, is out here, the brazen altar of sacrifice. Now, so say if you came through this gate, and the first thing is you come to the tabernacle, the house of God, there's a cash register here. You might say, God wants my money. <laughs> That's the first thing he's after. That's not in God's house. Not in God's house. What if it was a scoreboard of the scores? You say, God, God's big time into football. <laughs> first thing. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? A place that sin that offends God has to be taken care of. I'd like to show you tonight just one example that serves as a parable, that serves as a picture, that if you live back then, what had to happen that if you sinned against God, you were separated, you were under judgment, but God made a provision to cover that sin. The biblical word in the Old Testament for, to forgive your sin often is atonement. Atonement. We don't use that word a lot today. You know what the word means? To cover. See this laser? I just covered it. I atoned it. You can't see it. And so God had a way of covering his people's sins so they would be forgiven and God would not hold it against them. But we want to see that way that a holy God demanded. So, we're going to start out here. And, and, and the purpose of it was to clean them from their sins before the Lord. You know, it says in Leviticus 16.30, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So outside is a place of cleansing. Before you talk about service, before you talk about hearing from God and, and knowing God, you've got to start where God starts. You've got to be clean. That you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. If I went to your house, I don't bet, okay? But I'm going to say I would bet, but I don't bet. You know what I think I'd see at the front door? Some type of a mat, wouldn't it? And up in Rochester, it would be for snow. Here, it would be for sand, all right? It would be to get any dirt from the road or sight off my feet so I don't get it on your rugs or carpet or floors. It is a place of cleansing that you have, and I've, I've, almost every house I've seen has it. God has one, too on a spiritual level, is the altar. A place of cleansing before one can come further with God. Let me show you how it happened. If you have your Bibles, you go to Leviticus chapter 4, please. The book of Leviticus chapter 4. Going back in time to the parable picture, the way it used to be with Israel, which was only temporary until Christ came. But you go here to Leviticus chapter 4. And 
I'll show you just one example and take you down to verse 27. Leviticus 4 and verse 27. It says, and any, If any one of the common people sin through ignorance, while he doeth somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord, concerning which things ought not to be done, and be guilty, or if his sin which he hath sinned come to his knowledge. So we want to stop there. He sinned. Maybe he didn't know it was wrong, but found out it was. Maybe he did know it was wrong. But now he's guilty. He's guilty before God. He has offended his God. What does he, what does he do if he wants it forgiven? Does he or she say, God, I'm sorry. I'll just never do it again. It's not what it's going to say. Here's what it's going to say. Here at the picture in chapter 4 and rereading verse 28. Or if his sin which he hath sinned come to his knowledge, then he shall bring his offering, a kid of the goats, a female without blemish, for his sin which he hath sinned. He's going to bring an offering. In this particular case, there were many other cases, different types of animals. It would be a female goat without blemish. We'll bring it out here so maybe more can get a little better view. And so he had to bring a, a, a goat in this case. So he brings the goat. Is that good enough? No, no. Without blemish. Had to be a perfect goat. No broken leg. No scabs on it. No cancerous growth. God demands a perfect sacrifice. That's what the picture says. Without blemish. And so he finally finds a goat and he inspects it and he says, oh, well, there's nothing wrong with this. It's a perfect goat. I can sell it and get a lot of money for it, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to offer it. It's for God. So he finds it and he says, Lord, here's a perfect goat. Here's your goat. I'm sorry. I'm forgiven. Uh-uh. Something had to happen next. You look here, if you would, at verse 29. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of the sin offering. He comes, he's going, to take, he's going to lay it on here. He's symbolizing a transfer. That what I've done, this perfect goat, is it's going to be laid on him. I am responsible. In a minute, this goat is going to die and shed its blood. That's awful. That goat did nothing. How would you like it if you had to sacrifice your pet? You say, oh, that'd be a horrible thing to do. That, that's the price of sin. How about your child? That's what God did. Son. The, the ugliness of sin that offends God. So the hand personal you didn't say it was my mother's fault, it was my brother's fault, it was my sister's fault. It's my fault. It's my sin. It's bearing. You would lay your hand, and then you would do more. Look again at verse 29 here. And he shall lay his hand upon the, uh, sin, uh, upon the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And I skipped the part in verse 29. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering. He would put the knife in, and out would come the blood. Showing a death, something innocent, something that didn't deserve it, had to die. Now when that happened, when that happened, you look at verse 30. And the priest shall take the blood thereof with his finger and put it upon the horns of the altar of the burnt offering. And he shall pour out all the blood thereof at the bottom of the altar. The priest then, enter the priest, and we'll talk more about him later, okay? But here's this priest. He's a middle man. You couldn't do this part yourself. Some holy man had to intercede for you. He would catch the blood, 
And then he would take it over to the altar. And first of all, he would put it on the horns. It had four horns. I'm just going to use the front two for now. Horns speak of, you know what horns remind us of? An animal with horns emits what? Power. Strength. That's why sports teams like the, you know, the Rams. Nobody ever calls themselves the Lambs, you know. The Rams, you know, horn, strong. It, it symbolizes power, and we're going to learn there's power in the perfect sacrificial blood to take away your sin. And the rest of the blood he poured out at the altar, showing there had to be a death of something innocent, showing blood had to be shed. For the Bible says both in the Old and New Testaments, Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Once that happened, well, look at the next verse. Verse 31. Leviticus 4 and verse 31. And he shall take away all the fat thereof, as the fat is taken away from off the sacrifice of the peace offerings, and the priest shall burn it upon the altar for a sweet savor unto the Lord. So he would take a portion of that animal... And he would lay it on here and burn it. The fire, it would come under the fire, which speaks of the judgment of God. Now, it's, it becomes a sweet savor, a sweet smelling to God. You know, a piece of meat, a piece of raw meat, you leave it out a little bit too long, there's nothing sweet about it. You put it on the barbecue and apply the heat. And I kind of like the smell. I don't know about you. Okay, It changes the smell of it, doesn't it? You see, when it came under the fire, it was a sweet aroma unto the Lord. Now, when all that was done, look at the good news. Look at the end of verse 31. Look at the end of verse 31. It says, And the priest shall make an atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. Atonement. The sin is covered. It is no longer an outstanding crime that can be punished. It shall be forgiven him. And that is the picture that even children can take in. Something perfect must die shed its blood, must come under the judgment of God, and God will find that pleasurable because sin is dealt with, and God will rightly then take away your sin. We don't do that today, though. You know why? It's been fulfilled in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, He came and He was without... He, this is why His sacrifice counts. People die every day. So, so why is His death so special? Because He's the only perfect one that ever lived. He's the Son of God in a human body. The Bible says He did no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 He did no, He knew no sin. Teaches 1 John 3 and verse 3. He knew no sin. Uh, and also 2 Corinthians 5. And in Him was no sin. And so the Son of God has come and He's the only person that ever touched down on planet Earth that is sinless and walked through life and never sinned against God. And that's why if he will die, his death will count as our substitute, for we're all sinners and can't help one another nor ourselves. And that's exactly what he did. In love for you and in love for God, Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. And the Bible goes on to say to the one who trusts the Lord Jesus, listen to the good news of the gospel. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Not an animal anymore, but the blood of Jesus Christ, 
His Son cleanses us from all sin. Cleansing of sin. Clean before God. You know, in the language of Hebrews 9.12 where you were, how much more shall the blood of Christ, it says, He didn't enter in by the blood of bulls and goats, but by His own blood He entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And so tonight you have seen in picture form, if you believe the picture, if you believe the Word of God, there's only one way to God. And the first thing before we talk about service, before we talk about God speaking in an intimate communion with God, before we touch on any of that, you have to start where God starts. You'll never get there. You've got to start with being saved, being forgiven, being cleansed from your sin. And the only one that will take it away is a perfect sacrifice. And that's why Peter tells the Christians, we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 1.19 And if you trust Christ who died and rose again, God will cleanse you from all sin. And He'll never punish you. You're saved from wrath. You're clean. And you'll be, as we'll see, fit to serve and fit to come into His presence. But that'll take a little longer to get to that. So that is the first part of the sessions tonight. Uh, uh, the very basic thing that's needed has been fulfilled in the sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross. Have you come to Him not as a teacher, not as a miracle worker, not as a great reformer, not as just a great prophet? Have you come to Him as your Savior? and taken your place as a sinner, and laid your hands on Him, so to speak, and say, I trust you as my Savior. And the Bible says, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. And He'll cleanse you from sin. You must start there. So says God's parable. Well, may the Lord give you good understanding. What we're going to do, turn it back to Brother Tim to take a little song break here. Then we'll have part two tonight. After part two, if you have some questions, the men here of the, or later after we dismiss, uh, you can come up, you can look around, and uh, uh, children can look as long as they're not, not by themselves. Because you can't touch anything, you can look. If you touch anything, you might get bit. Okay? You don't want to do that. So, uh, but that will come later tonight. We do have session number two, Brother Tim.